You're listening to. And welcome back to Books and Boba, a book club and podcast featuring books by Asian and Asian American authors. My name is Marvin Yuan. And I'm Ri Rayu. And we are here to discuss our March 2022 book club pick, Light from Uncommon Stars by Rika Aoki. Um, and man, Rira, I am so excited to talk about this book because it takes place literally in our backyard. That is true, yes. <laughs> and I'm sure it's going to be a fun conversation. Yeah, I'm really excited. So um, let's let's just get into it because I feel like I feel like there's um uh, this book is just it's it's a lot. I remember um, chatting with you earlier this week when we were planning this session. You saying like, "Man, there's there's just so much to cover." <laughs> yeah, about this book. <laughs> I I think the thing that I said was. Um, wow, this book is an anime. So many (laughs) things are happening. (laughs) It's like five animes in one, right? It's like... Yeah. um, But yeah, so without further ado, let's um, let's get into it. So um, our standard spoiler warning, um, we will be talking about the book in its entirety. So that means um, all twists and spoilers are on the table. So if you have not read this book... Um, go read it. It's out at booksellers everywhere, including the Books and Boba online bookshop. Um, so if you want to get it there and support the podcast, you know, go ahead. If you already have the book, you know, you don't have to. Some content warnings for this discussion. So there will be racism, uh, homophobia, transphobia, uh, slut shaming, sexual assault, uh, dead naming, and misgendering. And despite all of these content warnings, this book is very optimistic. So it's not like <laughs> Super sad times. I actually had a lot of fun reading it. So, yeah. um, but if any of those are triggers for you, just proceed with caution as always. Um, yeah. So, I guess, Rira, let's get started as always with the book jacket description. All right. Shizuka Satomi made a deal with the devil. To escape damnation, she must entice seven other violent prodigies to trade their souls for success. She has already delivered six. When Katrina Yuen, a young transgender runaway, catches Shizuka's ear with her wild talent, Shizuka can almost feel the curse lifting. She's found her final candidate. But in a donut shop off a bustling highway in San Gabriel Valley, Shizuka meets Lan Tran, retired starship captain, interstellar refugee, and mother of four. Shizuka doesn't have time for crushes or coffee dates, what with her very soul on the line, but Lan's kind smile and eyes like stars might just redefine a soul's worth. And maybe something as small as a warm donut is powerful enough to break a curse as vast as the California coastline. As the lives of these three women become entangled by chance and fate, a story of magic, identity, curses, and hope begins. And a family worth crossing the universe for is found. Yeah, so... <laughs> I remember when reading this description for the first time because I had heard about this sci-fi book taking place in the San Gabriel Valley, and realizing each one of these, each one of those paragraphs could be its very own story in itself. And this book is so like I, I I'm trying to find the right word to describe the feeling of reading this book because all that that description may sound chaotic, but it's not. Everything kind of works and fits together. Even though it's like three stories that intersect with each other, forming like five more stories, right? Um, you know, you have your 
demonic Faustian um, music story. You have your refugee intergalactic um, alien story. You have your queer coming of age story, coming of age like Cinderella story. Mm-hmm. And it's just amazing how all three of these stories coalesce together, even though like, you know, the prose is just very, I don't know if kinetic's the right word. It bounces around a lot. Um, like every chapter has that like three to five POVs. You're getting new characters introduced halfway through the story with their POVs. And like, I, I think, <laughs> I think your description is totally apt. Like it is like a very, like, I think as people who've consumed a ton of like anime and like webtoon and like Asian media, like dramas over the years, a lot of the tropes that we see that um, Rika invokes is familiar, but like put together in a really, really interesting and unique way. I would say because this book is also about music, it's kind of like a symphony in a way, this <laughs> book, because you have like different storylines and, you know, like different instruments and different parts. But when they all come together, it is like it is an actual song and everything is completed and everything does tie together and harmonize with one another. Um, but Rika Aoki is a Lambda Literary Award finalist. Um, and uh, she is also like a musician, which makes sense because <laughs> a lot of the musical lingo. I heard, though, that uh, she taught herself violin for uh, preparation this novel and i'm like dude i cannot like violin is one of the hardest instruments you could ever pick (laughs) up Uh, like that is that is like insane to me but yeah like i've been wanting to read rika's work for a while she is the author of he malay uh i have no idea if i pronounced that correctly (laughs) probably not and seasonal velocities and uh i don't know we just like never got to her work uh, because our TBR pile is always, it's, yeah. it's never ending. But like when this new book came out, I was like, okay, we have to read it. It's set in San Gabriel Valley. And I love like musical anime types of stories. And it just like <laughs> seemed like both of our vibes, I guess, when it comes to our our genres and tropes. So yeah. I mean, I think this book seems laser focused to hit every single one of our interests. Plus, it takes place where both you and I live. Like, Rerun and I both live in the San Gabriel Valley. A bunch of locations, especially restaurants that she mentions in this book, are real-life restaurants. It's always great to see someone write about the SGV who, like, understands the SGV. You know, I, th- I feel like there's been, like, shows and, and stories before that I've seen of people who write about, like, an idealized version of the SGV. Like, They've probably never been here, but they know the idea of it. And they have like this image in their heads about what the SUV is like. But Rika's SUV is definitely like the SUV that like both you and I know. Yeah, there is a chapter where uh, they go to like the bougie violin shop that's in San Marino. Like, a right? very, <laughs> it, that's a very like picturesque plaza. And I was like, I know exactly where that is. <laughs> and I know exactly like what type of clientele uh, yeah, they have. I knew that I would love this depiction of where we live when uh, Rika described San Marino as the boardwalk park place of the SGV because that is something that only we who grew up here understand. Like as you go north into like San Marino, Pasadena, the buildings start getting bigger, the cars start getting nicer. Gentrification, you know, all that <laughs> jazz. 
but like Asian gentrification, right? Like big houses with people planting loquats trees, and it's it's so good. What did you think about the pros? Uh, did did it bewilder you? Uh, was it overwhelming? I don't think so. I like reading it felt very relaxing, despite a lot of the chaotic elements <laughs> uh, and, and just like the huge cast. I don't know. Like it was, it was very, a huge cast, wasn't it? Like it was a very big <laughs> cast, but I don't know. It like there were some parts where it did read like a fairy tale, and then it would like switch over to a more coming-of-age tone. And that switch was just so seamless to me. And I don't know, it was just very optimistic, very sweet, but at the same time, it doesn't sugarcoat the horrible things that trans people have to endure. Yeah. So it was, like, it was nice that you got to see both sides. Like, hey, like, this is what Katrina was going through with, her abusive family and uh, being like sexually assaulted by someone that she trusted, who was also from like the queer community. Um, it goes into just like feeling like you have to perform all the time and just that anxiety of always like having cues on like, okay, like how do I adjust my behavior so that I can survive because really it's a question of survival. And then you have her meeting her chosen family, people who accept her for who she is and willing to help her uh, get like her hormone medication and just like teaching her uh, violin, which is, you know, a whole nother thing with elitism and um, yeah. Uh, like a, a place where she doesn't quite belong either because it's like the classical world versus video game music. Yeah, it's so I've been trying to rack my brain how to approach this story because like we mentioned, it is three slash like five slash six even like different story threads put into one book. And you know, Katrina is one of the three main characters. You have Katrina Wen, you have Shizuka Satomi and you have Lantran and the way they interact, right? So, you know, the story between Shizuka and Katrina is the story of, and maybe this is because I've been reading a shit ton of, I don't even want to call it trash, like kind of comfort webtoons, like fantasy webtoons over the pandemic. But, you know, the story of the abused child who finds like an adoptive family who like cherishes and, and like kind of takes care of her is kind of a trope, right? There's tons of stories in especially like fantasy romance webtoons that follow this exact um, storyline uh, but underneath that layer to add like the the fact that the main character is a trans girl um, to add to the fact that the caretaker has demonic um, attributes to her because that's also kind of a trope in these stories where the person who like kind of takes um, custody of the abused child is also someone with like dark rumors swirling around them it's there's just, also it's so... there's also the trope of someone who has raw talent and they're being cultivated by uh, a master who either <laughs> is retired or, you know, something happened to them in terms of scandal and they're passing yeah. their knowledge to the next generation. Also, like the whole, um, I found it interesting that uh, with Shizuka's storyline, she sold her soul to the devil and now she has to collect all these uh, violent prodigies as like a form of payment and I think that's pretty common, too, in, like, musical stories, because there's a lot of, like, 
uh, folk tales about musicians selling their soul to the devil to have like superior musical skills. Uh, yeah. That comes from like the blues uh, genre. It comes from uh, Paganini, who is like mentioned quite a lot. <laughs> He's a violinist and composer who is well known for his very difficult pieces. And, um, you know, there's like, the rumor of, oh, he sold his soul to the devil so that he could, like, make devil music. Um, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, like, it was, for me, like, I came from a family with a lot of classical musicians. And mm. I was just like, man, I know exactly what type of people <laughs> and what type of prejudice is going on yeah. with, uh, yeah, it was, I was just like, and I'm then, having flashbacks. Yeah. I think, again, like a lot of recognizable story beats, but packaged in a very unique, interesting way. Um, the Shizuka storyline is is that. It's the Faustian deal. It's the, you know, I need to gather one more soul to save myself. Um, what did you think about the Shizuka storyline in terms of like, I had the feeling that she would end up not like those of us who have read these stories can see kind of okay like she'll probably end up bonding too much with Katrina and then deciding to self-sacrifice but I don't know for the longest time I kind of felt like she might actually end up sacrificing her um I never thought that she was going to sacrifice Katrina um because like I, I I feel like with uh Shizuka she is like a very selfish person. And just from like the idea of, oh, wow, you just sacrificed six people who, you know, were very young and talented. But at the same time, like she's not the most evil person. She's <laughs> far from evil in the cast of characters. Um, she's I mean... actually like very nurturing to Katrina. But like, so like for me, I was like, okay, well, she's going to see that Katrina has a soul that is uh, not worth trading because it like the world needs her music. So in my mind, it was never going to actually happen. That's true. It, I guess it was just because, like you mentioned, the, the souls that she did reap, I guess, were all also young people that she kind of took advantage of by playing on their insecurities. And I mean... Obviously, that's a that's a meta commentary on like the, how we treat young artists, right? It's also the fact that like those six other violin prodigies, they have they had ambitions, whereas like with Katrina, like she was just thankful to have a roof over her head, and yeah, it was it was like a different. It, it's just like yeah, our standards of of like living is completely different, and that yeah. that's why. I think that was a really interesting examination of not only class, but also like oppression, right? Like obviously um, Katrina is someone who is marginalized in a lot of different ways in the story, right? She's marginalized from her family, by her peers, by the music community in, as a whole. And you know, I've been thinking a lot about oppression because I've been actually re reading and watching a lot of uh, stories like TV shows and books and anime about oppression and how like that's portrayed and how do you oppress someone right you take away their future right Katrina was someone who for the majority of this book is someone who couldn't see a future for herself in what she wanted to do right she liked making videos and she knew that she wanted to play music but she never pictured herself as someone who could do that and that's because the whole world told her that she couldn't because of who she was. And I think, you know, Rika did a really great job portraying 
like how growing up oppressed affects the way you think, affects the way you see yourself. And I think, it, like you mentioned, yeah, it's, and that's, you know, in contrast with the other six souls that Shizuka reaped, where they all thought they belonged there and like were, were missing something. Um, Katrina's story was about how even when she's shown kindness, she didn't think she deserved it. Yeah. And, like, and so she was willing to sacrifice herself for really nothing for her teacher who showed her this kindness. Yeah, because nothing has ever been free for her. And you see that like in the beginning of the book where she runs away from her home and she thinks that she has a safe place with a peer from, um, I think, school. I think like, it was like a queer in, like, camp or something. like a Yeah, it was like a queer thing. camp. Yeah. And like... You know, like she thinks that she has a safe space, but he turns out to be very abusive. And, um, you know, they like he and his friends are stealing things from her as she realizes, oh, like everything comes at a cost. And her meeting Shizuka is is definitely like, okay, like when is the other shoe going to drop? So when when like Shizuka is like, hey, I have this deal with the devil. She's just like, okay, sure. Like, like obviously there's going to be a I, price, right? And I'm willing to pay it. Yeah. Also, there's racism involved because uh, Katrina is mixed race. Like she's Asian and also uh, Mexican. And the people at the queer camp house, I like, I don't know like how to describe it, but like the, the jerk roommate slash friend, they say some pretty racist things about Asians. And it's like, there cool. was a lot of like, Great. internal anti-Asian hate like you know not to you know, I know we haven't talked about the third thread yet which is about Stargate Donuts which is run by a family of refugees the trans but they're refugees from space like they're space aliens in the guise of a Vietnamese family running a donut shop escaping an intergalactic war it's such a genius way to portray the refugee experience in like a way that like people might not realize it's like an actual refugee story like if you take away the space part this is exactly the experience of you know Cambodian and Vietnamese refugees from like the 80s when they came to Southern California but in this storyline there is a character who is kind of bullying the son of the family and calling him like derogatory names like the genius thing that Rika does is she doesn't reveal his name till like maybe a couple chapters later and the bully's name is Din Trin who is himself a Vietnamese name and so like when, when they revealed that I was like what like it was just so it kind of blew my mind but also like I understand like I grew up with people like a Din Trin who like maybe it's because you grew up amongst Asians or you grew up never experiencing overt racism from like outsiders but like when you grow up amongst other asians you find other ways to marginalize people and you know when we were growing up especially in like the 2000s it was like american-born asians and fops like human nature especially when you're teens is you, you want to find ways to like prove yourself better than your peers and the easiest way to do that is to put down other people and so i don't know i felt that exchange is very real and very like like that does happen especially in the sgv well, I think you brought up a, a good point about like Asians having uh, self-loathing. <laughs> and I feel like a lot of the characters in this book, they have a lot of, let's say, baggage, for lack of a better <laughs> word. Um, there's a lot of self-loathing attached to like to their personalities as well. And I think this book like really emphasizes, hey, like you need to learn to love yourself because even... Uh, side characters they have like their own insecurities and you kind of see glimpses of um just like 
you you get into their headset, uh, you get into their mindset because um, it jumps POVs quite quite a lot. So I remember like the rival violinist girl, like I forgot her name. Uh, Miss Tamiko Giselle Grohl. <laughs> yeah, so like um, Tamiko, who is the rival violinist who was a potential seventh soul that uh, Shizuka could have collected, she has self-loathing too. She self-harms and she like her entire violin career, she's like, oh, I want to be the best and I want to like be... Uh, this violinist, like, I want to have, like, that same exact uh, level of success and talent. Otherwise, I'm worthless. <laughs> and, you know, she's she's a side character. She's a minor character. But you see, I don't know, like, I could see myself in her because it's like, it's like you push yourself so much. And... Those insecurities are are things that I think a lot of people can relate to. So this book definitely dives into like self-loathing, learning how to (laughs) love yourself um, and just saying that, hey, like you're enough, your existence is enough and you don't have to uh, earn that right to belong. Yeah. I mean, let's dive into land storyline, which is the third main thread, um, which is like we mentioned, she is the captain of this starship crew, which is made up of her family. And basically she is your, um, I mean, she represents like the refugee matriarch who doesn't have time for her life. She needs to work and you know, make sure that her family is taken care of. And I did love that her, the way her story intersects with, um, she's a good story is like a romance, right? It is, um, is a romance between Shizuka and Lan, and their dates were probably some of my favorite parts of the book, especially because they go to like real life restaurants in the Sangiro Valley, right? They go to Samu Barbecue, they go to Kim Ki, which I have to say, they they were correct in saying you don't order the Hainan chicken rice at Kim Ki. It's not as good as their soup noodles. But there's another dish that they're really well known for, which is their salted fish fried rice that was not mentioned and i felt like that was a missed opportunity or maybe rika's just not aware of the fact that people go there specifically for that fried rice as well um <laughs> yeah i really like the romance story between shizuka and lan it was very sweet and i don't know it just seemed very natural for like for the fact that lan is an alien <laughs> <laughs> and i was like yeah let's an alien and uh a soul collector, you would think that that kind of relationship shouldn't exist, but somehow it works. I mean, Uh, if you've dealt with the devil and you've dealt with supernatural shit your entire life, someone being alien is really not that weird. And I actually did love the fact that like everything was kind of out in the open pretty early on. So like, it wasn't a story about like keeping secrets it was a story about like oh yeah our lives are weird and let's bond over that right and i did love that the fact that like they both had these like uncommon and strange circumstances i think probably made it easy for them to accept katrina and and her circumstances right because they're like yeah you're transgender so what i'm actually an alien from another galaxy i deal with the devil all the time like your stuff is really like it's not a surprise (laughs) like everyone like it's like oh everyone is someone else and they're playing a part yeah yeah um there's also a four storyline that emerged um during the book which is the story of lucia mattia who is like the violin 
like the demon preferred violin um, artisan, right? I mean, the demon preferred part is not until like the last third of the book. So uh, Lucy comes from a family of very esteemed luthiers who have been like building violins for generation after generation. But it is a trade that is passed on through sons. So Lucy feels like she is not a master because she was not passed down those secrets from her father and her grandfather. And she just feels like she is not enough and that she can only do minor repairs. So when Katrina comes with her uh, eBay bought cheap Chinese violin and she's like, hey, uh, can you fix this? And she's just like, "Uh, this is not fixable. (laughs) I have to, like, make a new violin out of this. Um, I really like that storyline, too, because it's also about self-acceptance. Yeah. And then, like, later on, she finds out that there is, like, a female luthier in well, her family. I mean, yeah. And the twist of her storyline comes when she finds out that, yeah, her her skills stem from an ancestor with her exact circumstance, like a female luthier who was ostracized by her family. A part of, like, the Amadi family, who I guess is a, is that a real-life yeah, violin. it's a real life violin. Yeah. yeah, family. And the the ironic thing is that her skills, which it gets transferred down in the form of like obsessive, compulsive, like violin making focus right, and skills, it stems from an angelic blessing, right? It stems from the other side, um, which is something that the demon Tremen, I guess, ironically loves to like take advantage of. But yeah, her story. I love that he's a snob too, by the way. <laughs> Just like. <laughs> Like he's he's just like the classic a classic elite snob when well, it comes he to the classical music probably world. Probably the closest thing to like a white character in this book because he's the one that looks down on Asian stuff. Like how can Asian people be good at music and like kind of comes around on it, but in, in a very patronizing and like kind of gentrifying way um, as he starts accepting that there is such a thing as good pastry by an Asian patissier, right? Yeah, yeah, I guess so. Um, which is really funny to me because there are so many like skilled Asian like violinists and classical musicians. Yeah. So going back to the donut shop, what did you think about the the storyline of the trans? It was definitely like a doc- Doctor Who episode. <laughs> was and it? I, I just love how quirky they were. And I love this idea where they replicate donuts. And yeah. it turns out that like, oh, having the exact same donut is not like you need spontaneity and there needs to be imperfections for it to actually be appetizing. Again, like within this thread, there were like four or five other storylines going on at the same time, right? You had like the donut storyline of how like, no, you need to have the heart of the donut to sell good donuts. Um, You can't just like mechanically replicate them. There's the, um, there's kind of like the Pinocchio storyline with, with Shirley, the AI, who is actually the brain scan of one of Lan's like stillborn firstborn. Um, you have um, you have Marcus who's going through like his, you know, adolescent, barrel up tomorrow, teenage angst storyline. It encompasses the theme of like of souls, right? Like food, food. We often say like food is an expression of love. And same thing with music, like music is like an expression of the soul, an expression of emotions. And uh, and then you have Shirley, it's like, well, is she 
the is, is she like considered a daughter or is she just like I don't know like Siri of <laughs> of like their spaceship because she's not like quote unquote a living human being. So like what constitutes as a soul that is also a very big theme. Yeah. Um in in this book. And then you know you have the refugee mother in land who needs to balance being practical and being motherly even right her her entire being is dedicated to making sure her family is safe and you know that's shown in land's kind of complete disinterest in anything that's not practical right music is a frivolous thing that she has no time for which brings her into conflict with with she's story and I, I also like the fact that uh, the thing that they're running away from is the end plague and yeah. the concept <laughs> of the end plague is like oh as civilized civilization advances they solve all of these problems of like, oh, yeah, we're going to cure cancer and we're going to cure like environmental problems. But as they run out out of problems to solve, that creates the end plague where people people are thinking there's nothing worth living for <laughs> anymore. Like this is the end of the universe. And I don't know, that concept is like really interesting to me as someone with as someone with anxiety disorder and is constantly thinking about the end of the world and <laughs> and just like is this worth it like what's the <laughs> meaning of life if if everything is just gonna die in the end i mean the way that they describe it too is really interesting because it's like it's not any specific thing it's just observation that civilization comes in cycles like we learn about history by observing ruins of past civilizations does that mean our civilization is destined to become one of those ruins in the future and I couldn't read about the end plague without thinking about things like late stage capitalism and how like we're at this point where, yeah, like all the benefits of like this new way of doing economics and things have reached a point where it's no longer helping people. It's actually actively separating them and increasing like the wage gap and like, increasing like classism. And that will inevitably lead to some sort of collapse, right? Because we saw this happen even like earlier in the last century when like a lot of monarchies were like toppled, right? Empires fall and rise. It's just part of yeah. life. <laughs> That's the end plague. It's such an interesting way to like put that into perspective. I also like the idea of Lan like not telling her family uh, like why they're leaving. Like obviously there's like a galactic war, but uh, you know, she tells she tells her family, oh, we're building this Stargate and <laughs> it's going to be like a booming business because they'll have like front row seats to... Uh, this uh what was it like a, it wasn't like a planet it's like a solar collision. flare or something yeah like solar flare or whatever but the reason why they're they actually moved to earth was because of the end plague and she's like i have to take care of my family and that was also like a very refugee uh type story yeah. for me because i feel like a lot of parents <laughs> refugee parents they try to shield their children from what they're running away from yeah and the other very refugee thing about the Stargate Donut storyline is you have like this team of genius engineers and scientists and mathematicians making donuts to survive, right? And that's and then you have that one child who's like artistic and, and creative, <laughs> and uh, like the parent being like, "What are you doing? That's not the way to do things. Yeah. That's a waste of time." But it turns out they're you know 
there is a use for it. And they also have their cool auntie. I love that they chose like the cool auntie um, trope for this storyline um, because I think it totally fits. And you need a cool auntie to balance out like the stressed out mom, right? Yeah. I mean, it could have gone the other way of, <laughs> of it being a very meddling, <laughs> high tension auntie, which we all know. Uh, I also love that Rika portrayed Lan. Like, it's, it's such an immigrant parent thing to unironically love Olive Garden and other chain restaurants, you know? <laughs> and, like, Lan falls in love with Olive Garden, which is a very, like, if you have immigrant parents, like, my parents love Cheesecake Factory. <laughs> they love, you know, like, Black Angus. Um, for some reason, yeah, they love these crappy <laughs> chain restaurants for some reason. Um, I mean, the I food's good. I think it's good, about the value, you know? Because, yeah. like, with Olive Garden, it's like, oh, my God, they give, they continue it. Lissy give you breadsticks like it never runs out and uh, (laughs) same thing with like golden corral like (laughs) i feel like a lot of asians love a golden corral which is like a buffet yeah it's like wow think of the value you can get all of this food for like uh for 12.99 per person that's amazing i did have like a comment to make because they the reason that rika and she's gonna go to olive garden because they take a wrong term on the 710 and end up in cerritos and they say, oh, there's nothing else to eat here. Let's just go to Olive Garden, which is crazy because there's tons of great restaurants in Cerritos that they can go to. Tons of Korean, Vietnamese, like Chinese restaurants. Ugh. It's like the new Koreatown, yeah. like Koreatown and like Vietnamese town. They moved from the west side yeah. to the east side because <laughs> of gentrification. My favorite boba shop um, is in Cerrito, Soma, which is like a Taiwanese um, brand that makes this really good. Um, they use really good tea and they have a really great black sesame milk tea. Um, but also my favorite Shabu restaurant is also in Cerritos. Um, but jumping back to uh, the violin storyline, it hurt to read. Like there, there are a couple of scenes where like the MCs of the competitions and showcases, they misgender Katrina. Yeah. And that actually that hurt a lot to read. And I was just thinking, it made me think about, like, the classical music industry. It is so binary. And it's not because, like, everyone, like, has to dress the part, right? Like, if you're, if you're like, a cis woman, you have to, like, wear, like, a beautiful gown. And, of course, that's attached to uh, classism because if you can't afford it, then, like, you're considered, like, not presentable and you can't uh, perform. And... That just like reminds me of just and and that's like also tied in with like the video game versus classical music snobbery because it's like it's like that's not in like the binary of classical mu- music, right? Like yeah. it's like, oh, this isn't like it doesn't fit, so therefore it shouldn't be played. And I don't know, there's a lot of gatekeeping, yeah, although when I was playing um in high school, in my free time, I was trying to play video game music all the time. I was playing Final Fantasy VII music. I was playing like Xenogears Gears music. I did not have I did not have that privilege. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I grew up uh, being told that uh, pop music is garbage. Uh, like, my mom, my mom was just like, pop music. They have like the same chords. It's not original. There is like oh. no creativity in it. And I'm like, well, you're right to a certain extent, but at the same time. Uh, you know, there's a space for that kind of music. Like with video game music, you know, it can move people. It can give people uh, comfort. And 
saying that that's not enough <laughs> is just so, I, I don't know, like it's just so snobby and the gatekeeping. It's gatekeeping, it, right? It's because. Yeah, it, you, it was just like very uncomfortable to read. Because like if you think about cl- like classical music was in its time probably pop music, right? It's just been put on the pedestal. But I mean, like, like Paganini was pretty much rock music in his time <laughs> because people were just like, what the hell is he playing? It's yeah. Like, there's so many notes. There's so many double stops. Like nothing makes sense. It is just chaotic yeah. music. And it's interesting like if you think about it, and, and I don't know if um this might be going off a little off tangent, but you know, like when we listen to classical music, it invokes something different now than it did probably back, back when it was first contemporary. I don't listen to classical music and think about, oh, like the memories it brings besides maybe like having to learn this really hard piece because of band or because of whatever. Uh, but when I hear like a piece of, you know, quote unquote classic like video game anime music or like like soundtrack music, it does bring me back to, you know, whatever that game or that movie or that show I watched. Right. And I'm much more personally connected to that music than like any classical piece, just personally. Yeah. Like for me, for the longest time, like I absolutely hated classical music. <laughs> because of my family and that was like the only music that I was like allowed to listen to for like most of my childhood but like when when I got into video games and anime and I would just like listen to these instrumentals and also like film scores too once I once I started to like go see movies that I actually chose to watch for myself (laughs) I was like wow music can like classical music like instrumental music can be fun to listen to and it actually like introduced me back into classical music (laughs) (laughs) like i would listen to like joe hizashi's uh like music same thing with like iruma's uh piano music and i was like oh like let me listen to debussy because uh japanese like instrumental music takes a lot of inspiration from debussy and uh it just like and and I thought it was, like, really funny where um, they were saying, oh, yeah, like, back in the day, it, it was like you have to go to competitions to find the best violinist. But now you can just go on YouTube and there's always, like, an eight-year-old who's, yeah. like, better than <laughs> – it's, like, an eight-year-old who can play Paganini. There's so many child <laughs> prodigies out there. And I think that's so true. Um, like, with the digital – age it has made music more accessible and has really broken down um just it it has created spaces where people can be themselves uh but also it has opened up to trolls and a lot of harassment so it's two sides of uh the coin right there i I will say um there was one part of the book that reminded me of you and that was when um I think they were described as Asian music mom and Asian music son walked into the Matias's um, store. And I was like, this feels like something that would happen to Rira. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I have memories of going into music stores and my mom being very demanding. <laughs> um, oh man. This is the thing with this book. It's just, there's like, we've been talking for like almost an hour now. And I feel like we've only talked about a half of what this book has to offer. Um, because I apologize to the people who are listening to this episode. I feel like, I mean, hopefully Marvin has like edited this in a very coherent way, but we've been jumping back and forth 
quite a bit. So hopefully there's some organization in this episode. I mean, we're just following what the book does because that's what the book does as well. Um, I wanted to, this is so much like, I I think as someone who grew up in this area, the place where this book um, exists, there's just so many things that like was just super, you know, like it's it, the feeling you get when you like see like real representation for someone who understands the the material um i have to mention one of the big um set pieces i guess of the story is um, katrina's first live performance at the Camille days like festival in temple city which is a real life festival in high school i have marched in that parade with my marching band i know that stretch of land is a gloss tunis um past rosemead i know that pavilion that they're talking about where the performance takes place but I also know that in the book, this festival takes place in like July, but that festival is in spring. But you know, I get it. You have to fudge some stuff to fit the storyline timeline. But it was just such a specific event that like I had intimate knowledge of, which is like really like I don't experience this that often in reading. I'm sure a lot of listeners out there, a lot of readers uh, it, who are like from the queer community, who are transgender they must have felt like they were represented and seen. And, you know, like like I said earlier, there is a lot of uh, dark stuff. There is trauma. But at the same time, you know, there's a lot of hope and optimism. And I feel like you don't really see that in a lot of literature because I feel like with a lot of uh, uh, stories with uh, transgender characters, it could be very tragic. You know, like it could be like so heavy and dark and hopeless, but it was like so nice to see a character who obviously is very insecure and has gone through a lot of trauma uh, that she is in this path of healing and she has a chosen family. And I feel like chosen family is so important in the queer community as well, because um, there are a lot of instances, unfortunately, where the family will not accept them for who they are. And I just love how, like, in that um, in that showcase that you just talked about, um, Shizuka tells uh, Katrina, hey, look for that one person who is going to uh, give you confidence or who is actually listening to your music. And it really only takes one person to make you feel like you belong. Yeah. And I just thought that that was such a wonderful message. And um, I also like the fact that like the the person who who was like supportive was the because like what happens right? yeah. yeah what happens is like the MC's just like it's like oh uh like Katrina Yuen oh wait is like is she a he I don't know whatever it's so confusing <laughs> these days and it's just like what the fuck man like how do you fuck it up so badly <laughs> did you <laughs> did you notice how he got murked right afterwards by by uh, Shizuka's demon powers oh yeah one hundred percent. And it was also, like, I just have to say, like, Katrina, like, it took so much courage for her to actually, like, put herself out there online. To And she's not even, like, showing her face or anything for her video recordings. Um, and then just to be, like, outed by the... Uh, the, this new violin contest that apparently like a bank is sponsoring. I yeah, was like, wow, was this the is like the most Chinese friendship competition. <laughs> the most Chinese corporate name you can think of. Yeah, and like them being like, "Oh, Katrina is a 
trans woman violinist who is representing the queer community. And it's just like, wow, why? It's such a corporate clout way of marketing that like endangers the people that you're trying to. Yeah, you know, yeah. And it's support. just like, like before they outed her like that, it, it was um, like she's getting like all these like wonderful comments from listeners who are just like, wow, like I love your music. It makes me feel like really comforted. And then it's just bombarded by by trolls, people yeah. who are like fetishizing her and also like just saying really nasty things. And I was like, wow, like it. I mean, that was Tremon the demon stirring shit up, right? Because not only did she get shit for being a trans girl, they're also getting shit for like, why is this man like they don't know his demon why is this you know prestigious white man joining hands with a chinese company this is ruining classical music blah 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 i mean they say that with like the violins too being like oh my god like a violin made by chinese people clearly it's not like (laughs) it's not as good or whatever and it's just like hey like not everyone can afford like ten thousand dollar violins even a bow can be five grand and (laughs) as long as you can play on it like why not (laughs) and i don't know there's just like we keep bringing up gatekeeping but it's true like classical music has a lot of gatekeeping but thankfully i also like the fact that you could just learn to appreciate music and just you know not come from a prestigious background. Yeah, I think that's what makes Katrina's character so, like... That's why she is the the ingenue character, right? That's why... Because she, she is, like, the pure diamond in the rough who does not conform to classical musical culture. And that is threatening. And I feel like like one of the biggest antagonists, quote-unquote antagonists, of this story besides the demon is just gatekeeping, right? Just this idea of, like, what... Who and what deserves success? Yeah, like, even with, like, small things, like... Going to the bathroom and also just buy like buying dresses. It's just like, yeah. why are you gatekeeping those things? Like, how are they bothering you? Like when they were going shopping for dresses, I was like, you're going to make commission money. Like, why are you being such jerks? <laughs> like, like if you're if you're going to be rude, just be internally rude. You don't have to say shit like that but like i said like having that one person be supportive can make a huge difference and you see that with the uh the boutique that they eventually go to to buy the dress there's like a shop person who's very supportive yeah i did love that they did um you know i I don't know if this was rika's intention but definitely like the the shopping trope also in these stories where you go to the the dress shop and you like buy all the fancy dresses i love that that was included in the story as well I did have a chuckle at the fact that this shopping trip took place at the um, Santa Anita Mall, which like I've been going there since I was seven years old, uh, back before it had that ultra promenade. And the fact that the story made it seem much more fancy than it actually is. Um, but there are fancy sections of that mall, though. I guess. Because like you're shopping for like fancy like evening wear dresses. So they're not going to, it's not like you're going to freaking Macy's, you know, it's like an actual boutique shop. I'm trying to f- remember if there is a boutique shop. I mean, like probably it's, I'm, well, I'm pretty sure there, those stores there is. Just, I just don't notice because I'm a dude, right? So I'm like, I don't, yeah. I don't, I go to that mall to go eat, um, to go buy t-shirts at Uniqlo and maybe like grab a bulb or something. I go there for lens crafters. <laughs> <laughs> but there's a gin. Why not go to gin? Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah. But there's a quote that I really like from the book, and I think it sums up the theme quite well. Uh, tomorrow is tomorrow. Over there is over there. Here and now is not a bad place and time to be, especially when so much of the unknown is beautiful. <laughs> so very optimistic. Yeah. And just like even though the future looks bleak, even though you think that you have no future, like focus on now, like the people that you're with now, like you have limited time with them and yeah. just enjoy being alive and being with people that love you. Yeah. Well, I guess as we um, get to the end of our discussion, what did you think about the way the story wrapped up? Like, what did you think about the the climax, like the two climaxes of the story, which is A, the, the what, the, the, the golden happiness friendship competition where Katrina tries to sacrifice herself by playing Bartok on like the cursed bow. Which is like incredibly difficult, by the <laughs> way. It's like one of the hardest violin pieces out there. I loved that Rika dedicated like an entire chapter to describe like the four movements of this performance. It's probably like the most abstract portion of the novel, but it was so compelling, right? You couldn't like the way that she describes just the act of playing like this really complex piece and what goes into it. It made me realize that like, I thought, I mean, I'm pretty okay at playing music, but I never put this much thought into playing music. You know, this is like probably what the geniuses, like what the prodigies think about when they're like performing solos or whatever, right? Yeah, I mean, for musical competitions, <laughs> hopefully you have memorized the music and memorized your technique and it is muscle memory so that you can actually focus on the temperature of the music and the emotions and whatnot. And I just love the fact that you are in Katrina's mindset when she is playing these movements because it's like a metaphor of her journey <laughs> and her like finally being like, this is who I am. You're going to accept uh, all of the emotions that I have bottled up so far and then releasing it through music. And I like the fact that like she thinks that she's sacrificing herself by using the devil's bow, but it turns out that it was a copy instead. And the music was the, in her the, all the, the along. Power, <laughs> yeah, the music was in her all along. She just had to believe in herself. And I was like, I know that's a trope, but I love it so much. And, and then they follow up that climax with like the spaceship chase climax where Lan tries to rescue um, Shizuka from the demon by like having a starship chase through like the skies of the SGV. Yeah, and also I like the I this is this is where it gets like pretty Doctor Who where <laughs> they're like there are alternate timelines and universes and they're able to find recordings of Shizuka playing her music because all traces of her playing music in this timeline in this universe has been erased and which is which is why she is sacrificing these souls because she wants to be able to play her music and performing um, I read it as it's being like earthbound so like it's erased in earth but they can still find it out in space I guess because demons only have jurisdiction over the earth yeah I, I mean <laughs> I don't know but like but that part I was like oh this is very Doctor Who and I love it yeah like Land finds a loophole and like who. finds a way to save Shizuka and then they end up becoming like a traveling kind of like bard troupe throughout the the cosmos bring music to you know to places affected by the end plague and giving them hope, right? Because Lan discovers that she can feel feelings by listening to music. Yeah, music brings hope in the bleakest circumstances. <laughs> I, I just love the fact that Rika used it in, in her story. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So any final thoughts about 
light from uncommon stars. I know we just had like a very a very chaotic discussion, but it's just again, I feel like there's so much again. Please organize it in editing. Um, But um, I mean, that's just the the process of reading this book, and I hope um, you know we'll see if I edited it correctly. You let me know, listeners, if if everything made sense. But um, yeah, any final thoughts on on the book? Um, I really loved it. It was like I said, very optimistic. It was gentle. It was hopeful. Uh, But at the same time, it didn't gloss over the struggles of refugees and also transgender people. Uh, I also like the fact that it there's also this message of be selfish, like find your joy (laughs) and uh, know that you deserve it. And um, yeah, I just really love the amalgamation of all these stories and all these genres it just created something so unique something that i've never read before and we've read like space stories before we've read like contemporary uh magical realism books as well so it was a very interesting experience going uh reading this book and this book is pretty long it's like 400 pages like like close closer to 400 pages and i just breezed through it like pretty quickly yeah um i really enjoyed this book as well it was hard to put down because just the the story moves right you're jumping perspectives and you know i love that the book it's a mashup of a lot of different genres in ways that really work uh, because i mean if anything the san Gabriel valley is a place where a lot of different cultures intersect and match together and i think the story you know obviously representing the area where i grew up in was a plus because i got to enjoy a lot of kind of inside jokes that norika obviously wrote just for me um but and just the fact that the whole entire book is at the same time like epic and allegorical and meta um and just yeah, like a lot of things that really, really go well together, even though on paper it sounds like it sounds like pure chaos. Uh, this is a sidebar, but like the neighbor that brings some tangerines, I was like, wow, that's such a California thing because oh. I feel like so many California. Yeah, my neighbor like has lemon a, trees, avocado trees. Yeah, I have another neighbor that shares her peaches with us. Like it's yeah, it's totally like a California thing, especially in the communities um, descended from immigrants, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, let us know what you all thought about Light from Uncommon Stars by Rika Aoki um, on our Goodreads forums or on Twitter. Um, we'd love to hear your thoughts as well. Um, I guess, yeah, Rira, what are we reading for the month of April? Yeah, so we're switching gears for this month. We're reading A Taste for Love by Jennifer Yen, which is a YA rom-com focusing on Lisa Yang, who is the daughter of the owner of a very popular Asian bakery. And just with college around the corner, she agrees to help out at the bakery's annual junior competition. But it turns out that all of the contestants are young Asian American men her mom has handpicked for Lisa to date. (laughs) That sounds amazing. Yeah, looking forward to um, reading this and discussing this with you at the end. Also, also the cover of this book has uh, two Asian Americans drinking boba oh so, so we have to like, we're very honor on bound brand. to read this book then obviously 
Uh, yes, yeah, obviously. Looking forward to um, discussing this at the end of April. And yeah, that'll do it for this episode of Books and Boba. Um, thank you all for listening. As always, please interact with us on Goodreads on Twitter. And if you've been enjoying the show, I've noticed that there have been a lot of new listeners. Um, yeah, please give us a rating review on Apple or wherever you um, can review podcasts. It really does help us out by um, giving us a boost in you know being discovered by other people. And we really do appreciate any support you can give us. So um, with that, um, thanks for listening and we'll see y'all next time. Bye, everybody. Right, bye, everyone. Thanks for listening to Books and Boba. This podcast was hosted by Marvin Yue and Rira Yu and edited and produced by Marvin Yue. Follow the book club on Twitter and Instagram by going to at Books and Boba and engage with us on Goodreads on our Goodreads group. You can also check out past episodes of the podcast by going to booksandboba.com and by subscribing to us on your favorite podcast app. Don't forget, you can support Books and Boba and Asian American authors by purchasing books at our bookshop.org account. Check out the link in our show notes and also at booksandboba.com. Books and Boba is a proud member of the Potluck Podcast Collective, a collective of Asian American hosted podcasts featuring unique voices and stories from the Asian diaspora. Learn more about the collective and check out our fellow Potluck shows by visiting the website podcastpotluck.com. Thanks for listening. We're still here, and we're going strong. It's an exciting time in Asian America. There are more movies, TV shows, books, and music reflecting us than ever. But all of these represent just a small slice of Asian American culture and experiences. So what do we do? Tell more slices. Asian Americana is a show that explores these slices of distinctly Asian American culture and history. We've talked about how Chinese Americans built California's Sacramento Delta, the art scene turns gallery institution giant robot, a play that explores the lost Cambodian pop music of the 60s and 70s, and, of course, Boba, just to name a few stories. You can find Asian Americana at asianamericana.com or on your podcast app.